if you don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm going to choose not to be puffed up by pride with the fact that Life 97.3 chose us to be the Church of the Week on this week when I'm preaching instead of <laughs> Kyle. I'm just going to choose humility in that moment. Uh, we are in the Thread series, uh, and we will be for a while. It's, it's the series in which we take one passage from each book of the Bible and see how it weaves one story together about Jesus. So right now, we are deep in the midst of the prophetic books. How are you doing with the prophets? They're fun. Um, and this morning, uh, we will be tackling one of the most important, one of the most influential, and one of the longest books of prophecy in the Bible, the book of Isaiah. Uh, but before we open God's word, let me pray for our time together, and then we'll watch a short intro video. So will you pray with me? Father God, when we open your word, we don't want it simply to go in one ear and come out the other. We don't want to be unchanged, and we have confidence that you want to transform us by your word. So as we open this passage in Isaiah, would you open our eyes so that we can see more and more of your beautiful gospel and more of Jesus this morning? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The book of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah between 701 and 681 BC. Isaiah was called as a prophet to speak on God's behalf to the kingdom of Judah as they cycled between revival and rebellion. Isaiah delivers two main prophecies, a message of judgment and a message of hope. He warns Israel's leaders of their great idolatry and corruption, prophesying a coming judgment to purify the people. Their nation would be cut down like a tree, with the remaining stumps scorched by their enemies. However, this judgment would not be the end of Israel. Isaiah declares that the stump will remain as a holy seed, a preserved remnant of hope for the future. A new branch would emerge from King David's line, but rather than a mighty king, the Messiah would come as a suffering servant, beaten and rejected on behalf of his people. During a dark time in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah points forward to the fulfillment of God's covenant and coming salvation for all the nations. My wife, Melissa, and I have found a new little hobby that's bringing us joy, and it's watching rug cleaning videos. Have you ever watched these? They're fantastic. You start off with this absolutely filthy rug, just a black rectangle of muck, and then the cleaner gets it wet, and they put soap on there, and they get the power washer, and then they wipe it clean, but they're not done then. No, they got to do it the cycle over again and over again, and it gets cleaner and cleaner until four to eight minutes later, you have this rug that looks totally unlike what it started as. It, it might just be me as a neat freak, but I find it so satisfying to watch something get cleaned. I enjoy it much more than cleaning myself. I love seeing order brought out of chaos. And fortunately for us, as messy, sinful people who live in a messy, sinful world, God is also kind of a neat freak. <laughs> he, he loves to clean. Our God is a, he loves a restoration project. He loves to fix, to renovate, to repair. He is a fixer of broken things. And make no mistake, our world is broken. You know, we've seen that all throughout the Thread series. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and broke this perfect peace and order of this good creation. 
in the thread series, we've been choosing one passage for each book of the Bible, and just in the passages that we've chosen, let alone the passages that we haven't chosen for each book, we've seen the Day of Atonement, the blood sacrifices that were given to Israel to point to our need for forgiveness and cleansing from our sins. We've seen Moses hit the rock and rebel against God's commands. We've seen the cowardice of Gideon in the days of the judges, a time of anarchy and everyone going their own way. We've seen Israel chanting for an authoritarian king like the other nations, rejecting God as their king. We've seen civil war, death, exile, the problem of time, the injustice of God's people, not to mention the sufferings of Job. And then, on top of the Bible's record of human evil and suffering, we have our own experiences. We have the many, many stories in this room of pain and trials and hardships that have all, it's given us all scars and war wounds. Although this is our Father's world that he has made good, it's a masterpiece of unique and utter beauty. It has been soiled into a filthy, fallen world. And here's the point. Broken things can break us. The brokenness of the world can wear us down, rob us of joy and hope. There's a mental health term for this, crisis fatigue. Have you heard this? It's the cumulative stress of a global war after a pandemic, after inflation, after an election, after whatever else will come next. And unfortunately, the problems of this world are not as easy to solve as a dirty rug. I really wish they were. And all of us will, at some point, come to a place where the world is weighing heavy on our shoulders, where we wake up and we wonder, how is this ever going to get made right again? It's just too heavy to bear. What do we do in that moment? How do we cling to hope when everything seems hopeless around us? When it was time for the preaching team to choose a passage out of the whole book of Isaiah, it was really difficult to choose just one. I mean, there's so many good parts of Isaiah from the vision that Isaiah gets of the throne in chapter 6 to the handles Messiah unto us, a son is given, you know, chapter 9, Christmas is coming, uh, to the servant songs in the latter half of the book in Isaiah 53. We didn't choose any of those passages, though. Instead, we chose chapter 35. It's a little bit more obscure, but it is a powerful vision that Isaiah receives of the future. And I believe that it is extremely relevant for us this morning. Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a prophet for about 60 years. He lived, or he he ministered from about 740 to 680 BC. So that 60 years is a long time to be in ministry. And during that time in Judah, he witnessed a lot of things happen around him. He saw the comings and goings of four different kings who lived and died. He saw a civil war. He saw the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. He saw an invasion into his own country from the Assyrian Empire. So we might say that Isaiah's world was just as chaotic and messy as ours is, if not more. And yet, all throughout the book of Isaiah, one of his primary themes is to reassure the faithful that holding on to their faith is worth it. That holding on to your hope is worth it. And so we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 35 to help us learn how to cling to hope when everything looks 
hopeless around us. So here's the big idea of this passage. Because God will make all things new, we must hope with joyful strength. And in this passage of Isaiah, we're going to see three specific things that God will restore and make new. He will make new a new creation, a new humanity, and a new home. So I'm going to read the text. It's just 10 verses in Isaiah 35 and make some observations about all three of these, a new creation, humanity, and home, and then we'll wrap it up with some points of practical application at the end. Sound good? All right. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 35. I'll also have it up on the screen here. We're going to start in verse 1 and read to verse 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. A new creation, a new humanity, and a new home. Let's start with a new creation. In the chapter that comes before this one, so Isaiah 34, God is announcing judgment on human evil with flood imagery, like in the days of Noah, except instead of a flood of water, it's a flood of fire. So I've got it up on the screen here, Isaiah 34, the chapter before ours. Verse 9, the streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch, her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch, night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So God is saying here that for those who reject him, for those who use their power to exploit the vulnerable and harm the innocent, he will one day put a complete end to their evil. And God uses poetic, apocalyptic imagery as a vivid warning. You have to change. Judgment is coming. He's saying your wickedness is so pervasive, it will need to be cleansed with purifying fire. I just reread the book Holes. Maybe you've read it or seen the movie. It reminds me of Camp Green Lake, right? It's the vast wasteland where nothing can grow, or Mordor in Lord of the Rings. 
But one of the most important themes throughout all the prophets, and this is so crucial if you're going to be reading the prophets, you have to understand this. Judgments are never the end of the story. Can you actually say that with me again? Judgments are never the end of the story. God's demolition is always for renovation. And that's why after these frightening images of fiery hell on earth as a consequence for human evil in chapter 34, we flip the page and we come to Isaiah 35 and the surprising words of the first verse. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. So God promises that the wasteland, the wilderness, the desert will one day sprout new life again. Mordor will become the Shire. Flowers bloom. Lebanon was a region that was known for its trees, and Carmel and Sharon were known as these rolling meadows. And so you have trees that grow tall and grass that blows in the breeze. We ask, what about all that fire and sulfur that we just read about? Glance down at verse 6. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. In other words, this is Eden being described here. This is a garden. This is paradise. I've heard Isaiah called the prophet of nature because he always has his eye on how creation is affected by our sin and how God needs to remake this world into a new creation. Maybe if you've been around the church for a little while, you've heard the phrase, a new heavens and a new earth. Have you heard that before? It's the phrase that John uses in the book of Revelation to describe this future world. But that phrase comes from Isaiah, not from our passage, but from chapter 65. So when Isaiah is looking ahead at how God will fix this world, he is saying that we need another Genesis Not just a new humanity without sin, but a new creation without the effects of sin. In other words, when God promises to bring healing and renewal to this world, he is not content with just fixing broken humans. He wants to fix everything. Christmas is coming up. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And what's the response of creation in our passage? In verse 1, creation is personified so that Isaiah actually hears the earth singing hymns of joy in response to what God is doing. So for those of us who know musicals, To our surprise, the hills are actually alive with the sounds of music. And this is not a new idea in the Bible. In Psalm 19, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So when God makes all things new, even the dirt will burst out into a Broadway show tune. And you might be thinking, okay, this is all fine and well. The earth will be remade, new heavens, new earth. But how is this practical? How does this give me hope? What does this mean? 
Well, what it means is that God cares immensely about the natural world, and we should too. When it comes to how people think about the natural world, there are kind of two opposites here that we should avoid. We should avoid the materialist error of thinking that if we don't save the planet, humanity is doomed. And generally speaking, this is the view of secular people or non-religious people, that this world is really all there is and there's no hope for the future if we don't take care of this planet. But the scriptures teach us that this is not all there is. Yes, this world is broken by the fall and God will remake it into a new heavens and the new earth. And yet, we should also avoid the opposite error, the spiritualist error of thinking, you know what, why bother caring about the natural world? This world is going to burn anyway. Why worry about things like sustainability or healthy ecology? And unfortunately, this is the view of most Christians nowadays. But the problem with that view is that God does not view the natural world in this way. No, he instituted and called human beings in Genesis 1.28 to be stewards of creation, to do what is commonly called creation care, to step in and he hands us this world and says, okay, be gardeners, be fruitful and multiply and make this world flourish. This is the view that says, yes, I know the natural world will be, me, be remade, but right now, God wants me to be a wise caretaker of what's around me. So if you uh, own land or property, you have a piece of paper that says, yes, I own this piece of land. And the scriptures say you actually don't. God owns the land, and you're a renter on that property, and your job is to make it beautiful or beneficial with what is given to you. There's so much more that we could say about stewardship, but I want to turn our eyes toward hope because that's what this passage is all about. Our big idea, remember, is because God will make all things new, we must hope with joyful strength. So what does it mean for us to hope for a new creation? It means that we look at this world with new eyes, seeing both its current beauty and its current limitations, and longing for its future glory. You might know that Duluth was voted best town ever by Outdoor Magazine, and I happen to agree. I do think it's the best town ever, and, uh, and it's because Outdoor Magazine was specifically looking at our access to nature here, and this is not surprising. Many of you live in this area, and when I, tell you, when I ask you what do you love about Duluth, you're like, I love the state parks and the hiking trails that are everywhere. But what if Duluth was only a fraction as beautiful as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth? What if in eternity we were to look back and say, Psh, Remember when we thought the North Shore was beautiful back in 2022? Oh man, that was ugly compared to right now, compared to the beauty of God's new heavens and new earth. So Isaiah's vision changes the way that we enjoy nature now. Yes, enjoy it, we care for it. And it changes the way that we hope for God the creator to make an even more beautiful world in the age to come. So that's Isaiah's hope for a new creation. What about the second one, his hope for a new humanity? Take a look at verse five with me. Verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
after human beings rebelled against God, everything in this world is infected. Not everything is evil and bad, but every aspect of human existence is at least partially stained. And this includes us, it includes our bodies, our minds, our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that having natural limitations, physical disabilities, or mental health issues is directly sinful. No, what I am saying, though, is that in a fallen world, we all have areas in which our bodies, minds, and hearts don't work the way they're supposed to. We all have weaknesses, every one of us in this room. Pastor Charlie Dates in Chicago was once preaching on the story of Jacob wrestling God, and you might know that Jacob walks away from that story with a limp for the rest of his life. And Pastor Charlie Dates said, all of us have a limp. Some are just more visible than others. All of us have parts of our humanity that is not the way it's supposed to be. And some of them are pretty trivial. Uh, I should be able to catch a ball that somebody throws in my direction, but I often lack the coordination. Yeah, that's a bummer. Uh, around this time of the year, we get colds and coughs. We get sunburns and ingrown toenails. Our bodies break down. But there are many other breakdowns in our lives that we feel keenly, some of which are so massive that they're really kind of a, a major part of our story and our identity. Uh, my body isn't working the way it should. I should have full use of all my limbs, but I don't. Or my heart should work the way it should. It should tick at a regular pace, but I need a pacemaker to keep me alive. Or the chemical imbalances in my brain make me prone to seasonal depression. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. Or one that Melissa and I have dealt with. It should be easier to conceive than it actually is. I don't know what that is for you, these weaknesses, these limitations, these limps that we have. I once visited an older Christian who was at the end of his life. Uh, I didn't know this, but about four months after our conversation, he passed away. He was in his 90s, and he was telling me the laundry list of all of his ailments. You know, well, I've got cataracts, and this arm doesn't quite bend right, and I've got bad knees, and then he shows me his pillbox, and it's full, and so on. And then mid-sentence, he paused, and he laughed. He said, you know, these bodies weren't meant to last forever, and it just occurred to me that I'm a pretty good example of that. <laughs> but in Isaiah's vision that we just read, he sees the restoration of humanity in all of our faculties and capabilities, healing every part of us and returning us to shalom, to completeness. So how can this vision of the future actually help us hope in the here and now? There are two stories of Jesus that are relevant here. The first one is in John 9, in which Jesus saw a man who was born blind. And his disciples come up to him, and they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, what kind of sin led to this disability? And Jesus' answer is astonishing. He says, no, 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 that's not how this works. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you catch that? What Jesus is saying is that, yes, this man's blindness is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, God can take our limps and our limitations and turn them into beautiful displays of grace. 
And the same is true for whatever weaknesses you experience. Yes, it's a result of a fallen world, but God does not waste our imperfections and pain. Rather, he uses them for his kingdom. So what if your learning disability, what if your chronic pain, what if your struggles with anxiety, what if your trauma in the past even, what if that could be redeemed to be a part of God's story of grace and power in your life? What if it could be a message and testimony to the world saying, look how much God loves me. Even though I have this limp, he is faithful to me, and his glory is shining through me. The Apostle Paul wrestled with this. He had an ailment that we don't know exactly what it was, and he says in 2 Corinthians, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Feel the weight of that, of Paul saying, I have a limp, and Jesus' power shines through my limp. He can use it. It's not wasted. Let me tell you the second story about Jesus. In Luke 7, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, hey Jesus, are you the real deal? Like, are you really God, the Savior that we've been waiting for? And Jesus says, oh, you want proof, do you? Here's your proof. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Does that sound familiar? He's referencing Isaiah 35, and he's saying, when I stepped foot on this earth, the future that Isaiah predicted began right now. That's why Christians say that God's restoration is both already and not yet. Already, right now, God can bring healing for any injury and illness, but it's not yet fully fulfilled. We're still waiting for the day when Jesus will come and make all things new. Do you feel the balance there? And it might feel like a tension. We neither dismiss the present nor ignore the future. Both realities are necessary. And while it's so difficult to live in that tension, it is absolutely crucial for you to have a grounded biblical hope in this way. Christian hope is the belief that God can bring restoration right now but that ultimate deliverance will happen when Jesus returns. But this raises a practical question in our minds because when we flip past the Gospels to the book of Acts, we see that these miraculous healings continue, which prompts the question, should we expect these things to continue in the here and now, in our midst? And maybe frustratingly, the answer is yes and no, both. Um, Some of you here, Do not believe that God can do a miraculous restoration or healing right now. I'm just stuck with the way I am. It's the world is the way it is. And so you've dismissed the present and the already. And if that is you, let me say to you, expect that nothing is impossible with God. But others of you believe that God will always bring miraculous healing and restoration right now. And you might say, all right, God, bring the healing now, I believe. And then it doesn't happen, and your faith is shattered. 
So you have dismissed the future and the not yet. So if this is you, then let me say to you, expect that our hopes will only be fully fulfilled when Jesus returns. It reminds me a little bit of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. You might know the story from the talking vegetables or from your children's Bibles. Uh, This is the story where the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commands all his people to worship an idol, and he threatens to throw them into a fiery furnace if they do not. And these three men say, we won't do it, king. Now, if you want to throw us into the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, in other words, even if God doesn't choose to deliver us, let it be known to you, king, that we will not serve your gods. I, I love that prayer. I love being able to say, we will not do this. God is able to save us, and he will save us. But even if I'm wrong, and he doesn't choose to save me in this moment, it will be okay, because God is in control. In the same way, we can say about our limps, God is able to heal whatever weaknesses are in my body, I am confident in that, in my body, mind, and heart. He can heal me. But even if he doesn't, he is good, and he is in control, and he is able to turn this story into a story of grace. I I love that picture of what it looks like to live in the already and the not yet. And in the meantime, turning back to Isaiah 35, we have this command given to us in verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. When Jesus comes back, all wrongs will be made right. Everything that is crooked will be brought back into alignment. This is the Easter message, right? This is the hope of resurrection. How do we know that Jesus will restore our humanity and renew our humanity? Because he did it himself. Jesus lived as the only full human being without blemish or flaw. Jesus didn't have a limp. And in fact, the only limps that he had were the ones that he took from us as his body was broken, as his blood was shed on the cross, so that every stain in us could be washed away. And then when Jesus rose from the dead in power and perfection, he showed us what our resurrection would look like. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if, we're, if we only have the already, we don't have the not yet, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So what does it mean practically for you to hope for your new humanity? Well, just like creation, it means that we look at ourselves both by seeing our current beauty and dignity as well as our current limitations and longing for our future glory. It means that when we feel the frustration and pain of our bodies and minds and hearts not working like they are meant to, and you might feel it every moment, I don't know what you're going through, 
but you might feel it very, very often. What do you do when that happens? You pray two prayers. First, Lord, help me to see how your power can be made perfect in my weakness. And prayer number two, come back, Lord Jesus, and resurrect me to a new life. So let's turn now to the last three verses. We've seen a new creation, a new humanity, and in these final three verses, Isaiah looks forward to this beautiful image of a new home. Let's read verses eight through 10 once more. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So, so far we've seen in this vision from Isaiah, we've seen a wasteland, a desert, suddenly burst into green bloom. And then we've seen the brokenness of humanity knit and stitched back together the way it should be. And then lastly, we get this image of in the midst of this garden, a roadway appears, a highway, uh, all the way going to Zion, which is Bible talk for the perfected Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, our home. And this road, this highway has a name, Vadera Kakodesh, the way of holiness. And I do wonder if Jesus had this verse in mind when he described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. We do know from the book of Acts that the early church, the early Christians, didn't refer to themselves often as Christians. They usually called themselves the people of the way, the followers of the way. And this highway is not polluted by sin. It's clear. It is safe from any harm. And on that road, there's a crowd of people called the redeemed or the ransomed. It's this picture that's meant to evoke the Exodus story where you have people redeemed and taken out of slavery, brought through the wilderness to a promised land, which Revelation pictures as a garden city. I think the dominant message we should get from, this, from these passages, from this image, is that no matter what, God will bring us safely home. We don't need to worry about how God will make things new. We just need to trust that he will do so in the best time, and in the best way. And so we come again to the only commands that are given to us in this passage, verses three and four. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. What I don't want to happen is for you to read these images these in, in Isaiah's vision, and they just sort of sit in your mind as a pretty picture it gives you warm and fuzzy feelings. No, verses three and four tells us that these are powerful antidotes to fear and anxiety. They are pieces of armor given to you against despair. These promises are meant to fill your imagination so that as you walk around, it's kind of like you've got the 3D goggles on and you're seeing the real world, but you're also seeing, what could this world become? I can't wait to see it. And it gives you joy and strength. Yes, this world is full of sadness. 
but like the title of a recent famous book, everything sad is untrue, and God will give us everlasting joy. Yes, we are weak, we have limps, this world is full of peril that harms us, but God is strong and his power is made perfect in weakness. Yes, we don't know what'll happen tomorrow, but we know how the story will end and we know that God will bring us safely home. That is the message of Isaiah for us this morning. And so I encourage you to take these verses with you this week. Just choose one promise here or one poetic phrase that is resonating in your soul and carry it with you. Meditate on it. For me, it's been that last line, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When you're brushing your teeth in the morning, remind yourself of that phrase and pause for a brief moment to think about it. Are there any new insights? What does that mean? When you drive to work or take a break or microwave your lunch or wash dishes, let this verse saturate your day. Let it roll around in your mind. Many of us look at our phones first thing in the morning and last thing at night, but what if you took 30 seconds, 60 seconds to slow down, breathe, and remember this verse that you've chosen. Take ownership of it. If somebody asks you, what are you thinking about these days or what's on your mind, then you have an answer. You can say, you know what, these days I've been thinking a lot about what it means when sorrow will flee when Jesus comes back. I don't really know what that means, but there's some treasures there I need to sink down deep into my soul. And how will it change the way that I live? But inevitably, as we're living our daily lives, as we experience the brokenness that threatens to break us down, we come across situations where our eyes are only on the present and we've forgotten the already, not yet. So here are three questions that can elevate your heart from the present moment and suffering and give you an eye towards the already, not yet. First question, what brokenness are you experiencing right now? Just name what is going wrong. Second, where is God bringing already restoration? What grace can you see in the present moment, even in the darkness? And then lastly, what do you long for God to restore in the future? And whatever your answer to that last question is, that becomes your prayer of, Lord, please make this happen, I long for it. Because God will make all things new, a new creation, a new humanity, a new home. We must hope with joyful strength, and we do so by the power and the grace of God. Next week, we are going to be in the book of Micah, who actually lived in the same time period as Isaiah. They were contemporaries. So I encourage you to read the book of Micah this, re this week. It's, it's a little bit more manageable to read the whole book of Micah than to read the whole book of Isaiah. So you're welcome. Uh, but for now, let's pray for God to help us. Will you pray with me? Father God, so often our eyes are toward the busyness of our schedules, the here and now, the bad news that we latest heard or scrolled past on our feed. And yet, Father, you have given us this vision. You have brought each person here so that we can hear your word. And so I pray that as each of these people go out, that you would walk with us, that you would give us armor against fear and anxiety and doubt, that you would give us hope with joy and strength. Jesus, we long for you to come back. Come back quickly. 
We wanna see you face to face and we wanna see how you're gonna make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We now turn to the communion table where we are given a tangible reminder that in order for us to have this hope that Isaiah describes, in order for us to be saved, Jesus' body had to be broken and his blood had to be shed as a perfect sacrifice and substitute for our sins. So if you are a Christian or if you became a Christian this morning, then taking communion is a way to remember the love of Jesus for you and the salvation that he brings. If you are not a Christian, I ask that you not take communion because I would much rather you take the thing that communion points to, which is Jesus himself and eternal life. But if you're not there yet, if you're still processing or asking questions or uh, exploring, then we are glad you're here and we welcome you to keep asking questions. For those taking communion, you can come down the center aisles and there will be a gluten-free station in the middle. But first, let me pray for the communion table. Father God, we thank you for giving us your son. And Jesus, we thank you for giving us this table, the bread and the cup, so that we can remember all that you have done. Go with us, Father, as we go from this place. Strengthen us in the name of Jesus. Amen.